Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on getting to know God better. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Well, Lord, like the children of Israel, we are moving around, and we're in a different building tonight. Thank you that we can come together to learn about your ways, particularly during this Lenten season, as we prepare for the remembrance of your crucifixion and resurrection on Easter Sunday. We ask you to open our hearts in a special way tonight to the truths about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in the fourth week in our Growing and Knowing Him series. And we, for how many, is anybody here for the first time? See, okay, got a few hands. Well, just to give you a two-minute recap, we talked about that the man's chief aim is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, but that we know plenty of people that would not know how to answer the question, well, how do you glorify Him? And we also know plenty of people that by their faces, it doesn't look like they're enjoying Him very much. I grew up going to a, a regular church, another denomination, won't mention the denomination, but at that point it was at a sort of a low level in a lot of things. And I remember as a teenager thinking, if this is so great, how come everybody looks so glum in the church services? And I thought, this is more than reverence. Uh, you know, this looks like boredom to me. And I, sir, was bored. So as we think about how can you glorify God and enjoy Him forever, we talked about that what the Bible puts emphasis on. If you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, Paul doesn't talk as much about, well, we need to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He says, I want to know Him. But as you get to know Him, that's how you can begin to glorify Him more, and you can enjoy Him. So it's, it's different, but the same. But then we said, well, but that's, that doesn't help us any. How can you get to know somebody that's invisible, that you can't hear, see, touch, taste, smell? And some people even don't even think He's there. So how can you get to know Him when we looked at Moses in Exodus 33, where he said, Lord, show me your ways that I may know thee and that I might find favor in your sight. And we talked about that you can study what's known as the ways of God, his modus operandi, the way he operates in uh, Bible times. And that will teach you a lot about how God is today because he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And we have already looked at his ways of uh, revelation and of salvation. And tonight we're going to look at a very exciting one, his resurrection. This is, of all the things we're talking about, I guess this is the most appropriate for Easter time, isn't it? Because that's what Easter Sunday is. He arose. And as we open our Bibles, you know, you, 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 very beginning when you open the scripture, you encounter that God is a God of creation. And there are the six days of creation and then he rested. But the very beginning of the... Bible, the very, one of the first ways of God that's shown is that God is a God of creation. But I'm so thankful that he's not only a God of creation, but also a God of the resurrection. We have some things here on this table. There is a, a bowl of jello, a spoon, there, is a, there are a number of cups and things, and I imagine at the end of the night that cup 
right there with the top on it and the straw, and it's probably got some drink in it. Somebody's drunk out of it, so you wouldn't want to drink out of it. And probably no one here is coveting this cup to say, oh, I hope they leave that, and I'm going to, when no one's looking, take that and pop it in my purse or my briefcase to take it home, to save it, so that I can pass that on down to future generations. I'm going to wash it and put it in the, uh, you know, in the hutch there in the dining room, and so that my, and I'll put it in my will. I have this nice cup, you know, and I'm going to think about who I'm going to leave that to and make sure I'm going to request that it stays in the family. We went down to Savannah yesterday to pick up a few things that were given to us by our family. One of them was a beautiful clock, about that high like that, all carved wood. It's about 120, 130 years old, chimes like Big Ben. It's absolutely beautiful. And my brother said, we could have it. He says, I just want it to stay in the family. Now, what's the difference between that clock and that cup? Well, that cup is used, and if you try to use it much more, the bottom will melt out. It, it just won't work for anything. And when we talk, there's, uh, about our society today, a lot of times we talk about it being a, a, a disposable kind of a society. We so handy to be able to use something and then throw it away uh, that it's, it's easier than cleaning it and putting it away, right? And so we have a lot of things that we just get rid of. But uh, fortunately, God isn't that way. If he was that way, you know, that when something is bro broken, you just throw it away and get a new one, none of us would be here. Because we're all broken. And we don't just need him to be a God of creation. He made us. But we also need him to be a God of resurrection. Because in a lot of ways, things aren't right with our lives. And it's the, his way of resurrection that gives us hope in a hopeless situation. Philippians 3.10, Paul writes, if you want to open, open up, just look at it in your own Bible. That's such a good passage. Paul was talking about kind of his life philosophy and how he no longer is thinking primarily of his own curriculum, his own pedigree, but that he's totally changed in his understanding of what life is about. And he says about the other things in his life, uh, Starting in verse 8 of Philippians 3, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And he had. He was in prison right now, and you, they don't let you take anything in there with you, you know, just the clothes on your back. And he says, I consider all the things I had rubbish, and he's including his heritage and his pedigree, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being like him in his death. Now, we've already talked a little bit about knowing him, but the very next thing he says after that is, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to experience that power. And we want to kind of dip into that a little bit tonight. What did he mean by that? I, I don't know. I think when he says, I want to know him, a little bit clearer thing pops up on the, our mental screen. And also when we hear the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, well, we kind of get a picture of what that might be. We might not want it, but we, have, we at least know what it looks like. What is this to know the power of his resurrection? So we want to look at that a little bit tonight. Now we all like rescues. And we talked last week about his way of sal uh, being a God of salvation. And a lot of the things we've enjoyed watching on TV and the stories we've enjoyed hearing had to do with rescues. 
A deep problem, horrible need, impending doom, an approaching giant army, fire, all of the hurricane. And it looks like this person's going to die, or maybe you've seen movies where it looks like they did die. And you're, they leave you crying for about three, maybe even three solid minutes, you know. And then they open their eyes, oh, you know, and I cried all that for nothing, you know. But this, this, this scene of deliverance out of the jaws of death at the last minute. But that is a type of salvation. But when we talk about that God's also God of resurrection, this is kind of a different twist on it. Because in this type of a thing, the person actually does die. And the only kind of solution that could be there after that is a supernatural one. And there are times when we will be asking God for salvation in a particular, or rescue in a situation. And he will go ahead and let it play out. And it will be all over. Because he's got some, it was a time when he was not primarily looking to rescue us, but to resurrect us. You can only, resurrection only comes in when there's been a death, when there's been a total loss. If it's still, still salvageable, it's salvation, not resurrection. So uh, we notice in the Bible that uh, some of God's very best work is his work of resurrection. Now, the most notable that we know of is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, when most people hear the term resurrection, that's about all they think of. Of course, we say that thing in the creed, you know, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, and nobody's thought a whole lot about that. It's going to be happen someday when uh, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God when that tr last trumpet blows. And according to the Bible, all those that have died in Christ will be resurrected bodily, physically. It will be more amazing than any movies you and I have ever seen. And uh, it says, because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, you can be sure that God is going to raise you from the dead someday. So that's an interesting thing to look forward to, isn't it? And we say it about every Sunday. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. You know, clueless as to what it is, but we believe it. You know, so it's good to maybe dig a little deeper and appreciate these things that we have believed, you know, without knowing what it was. But we, we could think, well, maybe uh, is resurrection just something that kind of pops up in the New Testament? You know, when we talk about the ways of God, as I mentioned before, we're not just looking at the individual bush of a particular activity or story that happened, or not even the hedge of bushes that was a storyline like in 1 Samuel, but we're flying overhead looking down at the garden and seeing all of the hedges and realizing, hey, that spells out a name or a word or it's a design or a maze or something. And when you talk about the ways of God, it's something that goes all the way through the whole Bible and tells us something about the way God is. So when we think, well, is there anything in the Old Testament about resurrection? You know, there's a nice verse, you want to look it up in Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Resurrection is something that comes up also all the way through the Old Testament. And Isaiah, he is prophesying that not only are they going to be taken into captivity, but they will return from captivity. And actually, when Israel, when, when Judah and Jerusalem fell, it was like the death knell of the nation. The king, as the last thing he saw, King Zedekiah watched as all of his sons were put to death, and then they blinded him. And they took him off into captivity where he died. And they took everybody away out, out of Jerusalem to Babylon. And as far as anyone was concerned, it was over. The nation was dead and buried. 
So when they came back, that was a picture of resurrection. In Isaiah 61 and 2, he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. In many other passages in Isaiah, it pictures the resurrection of the nation of Israel one day, even after that terrible death and uh, burial of 70 years in the nation of Babylon. We also see it uh, in reference to Abraham, Romans 4.17, if you'd like to look at that. Romans 4.17, Paul is writing and he's writing about uh, Abraham being our father in the faith who believed God. And Romans uh, 4.17 says, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Uh, you know, you've heard probably that the name a Abram was his first name and then it was changed to Abraham. Abram is exalted father and Abraham is father of a multitude. So when he says here, I have made you, Abraham, a father of many nations, the word there is Ab. And so he says, you know, Abram, I made you an Ab. Uh, it's kind of like father of a... Exalted Father, I made you a father of many nations. And he says, He is our Father in the sight of God. And then it just throws this thing in and it's an aside, but it's so beautiful. It says, In whom he believed. He believed in this God. What God? Watch these two phrases. The God who gives life to the dead and who calls things that are not as though they were. In other words, he creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. And we see two of the ways of God here. You could say, well... There were many gods back during Abraham's day. Which God did he believe in? Oh, oh, let me tell you which God he believed in. He believed in the God that can raise the dead and he can just say something and it will pop out of nowhere, out of nothing. No other gods could do that. Well, okay, we know which God you're talking about. There's only one that can do that. The real God. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Now we want to look at maybe the most interesting passage dealing with resurrection in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. How, um, but how many people have read the Valley of Dry Bones? Come on, let's see. Hands? Got a hand? Okay. Well, let's take a look at this. But in Ezekiel 37, this is again a prophecy of the resurrection of the nation of Israel. So that's what's, what's the background of this. But the prophet Ezekiel, who... Now, Ezekiel, let me just tell you a little bit about him. He was a young man living in Jerusalem. And the king of Babylon came. This was before the actual siege and overthrow of Jerusalem. And he, they'd already, there were three different deportations where they took people away and took them to Babylon. First, Daniel was taken and his friends. Just, just a few young men to be trained. Then they took all the educated people. That's when Ezekiel, the priest, went. And finally, they overthrew the city a number of years later. So Ezekiel was in Babylon. Jerusalem was still standing, but it was only like five years before it was going to be overthrown. And uh, Ezekiel tells about this, this, what happened to him. He said, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. There's one major valley in the Holy Land where many of the main battles have been fought, and the Bible says will be fought. It's right next to the city of Megiddo on the, on the highway that goes through there. And that's why it's often called the Plain of Megiddo. 
Uh, you may have heard the term Armageddon, Har Megiddo, the plain of Megiddo. That's what that refers to. It's that big valley of Jezreel uh, going from Mount Carmel, which is over on the, the ocean or at the Mediterranean Sea, and then there's this big long valley, and then up Mount Gilboa where Saul died. And so this is probably the valley that uh, Ezekiel is picturing here. And he says, he set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. Now, we read this, and we think, well, just bones. You know, it's like going through the supermarket. There were cans, you know, fruit section, fruits. But I imagine that it was a pretty macabre tour uh, here. You know, it's, uh, he probably realized we're, we're in Israel. That maybe is a relative of mine. And they're just these white, sun-bleached bones lying all there. Years have passed. A big battle has, has happened. And they are, it's not just people that are slain, a little bit of blood, you know, but intact. It's not just that they are in a certain stage of decomposition where it really looks awful to look at, you know, or the smell. It's not just that they're kind of skeletons, but they're, they're now totally dry skeletons, and they, because they've been probably picked apart by birds of prey and stuff, they're not even connected. So it's just heaps of bones everywhere. The next stage in deterioration is dust. So this was the last stage in decomposition where you could still recognize that it had ever been anybody. And so he's walking around looking at all of this, and he says there were very many. It says two things about this. There were very many, and they were very dry. And God asked him, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, if he was going to answer humanly, he would say it was, it's absolutely impossible. I mean, we don't even know how, if a man's been slain and is lying there dead, we don't even know how to resurrect him. And we certainly don't know how to put bones back together and put, come up with all of this stuff that's not on him and put it back on him. But since he's talking with God, he says, well, you know, we won't shut off any options. Let's, let's uh, answer non-committally. We've had some politicians that know how to do this pretty well. He, he said, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. That is always a safe answer, isn't it, with an omnipotent God? Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Prophesy to these bones. And uh, he's supposed to say, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, he may have felt a little foolish doing this. Uh, bones, there was no brain. They're, they, of course, were dead, and dead people, as far as we know, don't hear. But he didn't even have any, they didn't have any ears left. You know, that wasn't, that's not a bone. So they had nothing with which, supposedly, to hear. And God says, it almost seems like he's sending him on a fool's errand. I want you to speak to them anyway. It says, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. And whenever you see that word Lord, see how it's written in capitals? Do you know why that's written in capitals? That is code for a particular name of God in the Bible. The name that he gave Moses on Mount Sinai when he says, when I go to the children of Israel, who shall I say sent me? And he says, he gave them the word I am. As far as we know, that's what it's translated. It's, uh, in, in Hebrew, it's Yehovah. You've heard it transliterated as Jehovah or Yahweh. But it all comes from the same four-letter Hebrew name that they would not normally pronounce. 
when they're reading it in Hebrew, they would never voice those letters. When they get to those letters, I'm taking Hebrew now, throwing a little bit of, no extra charge here, but that you get to this name and you read another, there are two words in, in Hebrew, there's what's written and what you read. And when you see this word written, you don't say that word out of reverence. You say this other word, but everybody knows that that's what that word is referring to. It's an interesting thing. Yeah, and you've noticed in the New Testament, somehow they seem to try to avoid saying God's name. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He who began a good work in you. All of that is trying to avoid overusing God's name. It's a way of honoring God and treating him holy. May he who lives forever bless you instead of using God's name. So when we see the word Lord written in there, it's that name. It's his name. It's not just a general term like God or something like that or a God. It's the name that he gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. He says, this is my name. This is what I want you to tell, tell them, who it is that sent you. And so he is supposed to say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. He says, I am going to raise you from the dead. These, all of these people, that have, I'm going to raise them from the dead. And then everybody will look at that and say, wow, he really must be God. I'd say that's pretty convincing, wouldn't you? So, in verse 7, he says, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. There's a song about this, isn't there? Yeah. Hip bone connected to the leg bone. Um, now, as I was noticing this one time, the, the, the word, there was a noise. There was a noise. In Hebrew, that's coal. And that word, interestingly enough, most of the time is not translated as sound or noise. It's translated as voice. And we could just as easily translate here, so I prophesied as I was commanded. In other words, the prophet's voice was going out over these bones. And as I was prophesying, there was a voice. And I think it's a beautiful picture of how as God's servant was declaring God's word, in a sense, God's voice was going out within his voice and making it effective. The, and Jesus says in the New Testament that um, the hour is coming and now is, I think in John 6, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those that hear will live. I was reading in another place in, in Ezekiel this morning in my quiet time. And he compares Israel to a little baby that's born that nobody wanted and they just threw it out in the field. And he says, I came by and you were lying there uncared for. Your umbilical cord wasn't cut. You hadn't been washed off. And they just exposed you like that was their form of birth control back then. And he, God says, I passed by and I saw you there squirming in your blood. And as I saw you lying there, I said over you, live. Just that one little word, live. But it's his voice that can raise the dead. And again, we see this again and again, all the way through the scripture, this aspect, this principle, that he is not only the God of creation, not only the God of salvation, he's the God of resurrection. So there's this, uh, and flesh appeared on them, skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. 
It's an interesting picture of what happens sometimes in churches and ministries. We, we can figure out how to get the thing organized. They say, well, this bone, I think, goes with this bone. You know, we need to set up an apartment, a, um, a department for this and a committee for this, and we need space for this, and we get all our papers and everything, and everything is together. And yet, in some sense, it may still be like a corpse on the ground. But what does it need? Does it need another arm? No, it's got, it's got all of its parts. Looks like it's all there, you know, as far as, a, let's just say it's a church, you know. Yep, they got, they got a pastor, yeah. Got a church building, uh-huh. They got money, no. You know, you could always use some more, but they got it. They got an organization. They got a plan. Yeah, they got pews. Yeah. Well, then what's their problem? And it could be that there are times when what we have done is all that man can do and all that the flesh can do. And it's not bad, but it's still a corpse. And he says there's something missing here for it to have life. There was no breath. The word breath, ruach, the same word used for spirit. There was no spirit in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath or to the spirit. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, verse 9, come from the four winds, O breath, O spirit, is the same word, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, or spirit, they came to life and stood upon their feet a vast army. Now, if Ezekiel was of a weak constitution, he probably would have fainted right then. You know, it, I mean, it had already been pretty traumatic seeing the bones in the first place. And then he starts speaking over them, and he's probably thinking, well, this is probably some allegory. You know, I mean, nothing's really going to happen. I mean, uh, maybe at the latter day this will be fulfilled back when I'm one of them, you know. But while he's talking, all of a sudden there's this loud noise, you know, and it's like, snakes all on the ground. There's these bones slithering around, you know, because one is, you know, they're kind of separated. And so one is kind of slithering along through the ground, you know, trying to, and then it links up like magnets, you know. And so he's kind of trying to figure out where can he stand without getting knocked over by these moving bones. And then, then start, stuff starts growing on him. And, and then finally he speaks to the spirit, to the wind, and all of a sudden they all hop up. They're weapons. He says, oh, you know, man, this is just too much. It says, they came to life and stood upon their feet, a vast army. What a tremendous picture of resurrection. Tremendous. Not only tremendous because it is resurrection, but it's who he resurrected. Now, we kind of expect Jesus to be unstoppable. Un you can't really kill him. So, yeah, they crucified him. And I know he was really dead, but, man, I'm sure he's coming back. He was the best man that ever lived. He was God. I mean... How else could it end? But these were people that had sinned against God, had blown it in many ways as a nation. God had had to discipline them. And then, well, it's like that cup over there, you know. We're not going to save that cup. Toss it out. We need a new cup. We don't need to resurrect the old cup. But that's, this tells us something about how God is and why eventually, if you're not glad already, you will be someday because we all have a propensity for really messing things up and then feeling bad about it the rest of our lives. And the fact that God is a God of resurrection needs to become more ingrained in our thinking that somehow He is able to pick us up, not just when we've fallen, not just when we've been wounded, not just even when we've been killed, but when it's also gotten so bad that no one would give us even the slightest 
breath of a hope. And God says, well, now it's time for my best trick. <laughs> His best work. A couple of thoughts here. First is that God's specialty is impossible situations. That's his specialty. And that's also, he's the only one that can do anything about it, so he doesn't have much competition either. And there are going to be times you're going to be in an absolutely impossible situation. And to have that ingrained in your thinking, but my God, his specialty is difficult and impossible situations. And that can be a source of hope, a source of prayer, and a source of praise. Secondly, he likes to use us to do incredible things. Notice with Ezekiel, he didn't say, Ezekiel, I'm glad you've seen, like a magician, he'll invite people up, let them inspect everything, and he say, now watch this. And he does his thing. He says, Ezekiel, I'll let, I'll let you do it. Me, Lord, I, I, you know, I, I, I think you know if they can ride, and you can do it, but I mean... I'm, I, I'm just, I'm new here. <laughs> My degree was in being a priest. Uh, I'm not a, an undertaker. And, but God says, I want to, Ezekiel, I want to use you. I want to use your mouth. I want to use your faith. And when you start to speak, I'll start to speak. And it is a tremendous thing to realize that God may very well want to do something really, really significant through your life. And not because you're the best, or you're perfect, or you haven't blown it, but because he is the God of resurrection also in your life. And he likes to use us to do incredible things. One of the reasons is it brings him glory. The smaller you are, the less likely you are to accomplish something great, the more that qualifies you to do it. Because God says to himself, there's no way anyone will think this person did that on their own. I mean, this is going to be so out of the ordinary, so out of character for this person, that that's why I'm on purpose going to pick this person, the least likely, so that he can receive the most glory. So if you feel little, small, weak, even wicked, but saved, say, Lord, I'm your kind of person. You know, praise the Lord I don't have all those gifts that some of these other people have because uh, you, you'll really get glory if you use me. Everybody would be surprised. The verse that God gave me when, uh, about going into the ministry when I first went overseas after college is in Psalm 71. He says, I have become a marvel to many, for thou art my strong refuge. And what I got out of that was that God was going to do things in and through me where everybody that knew me would say, you're kidding. Him? There are times when my mother will run into somebody that knew me in high school. We were in the same grade in high school. And she said, I think you were, Henry was in school with you, I think. And they'd say, Henry who? I was such a zero. I, I was not loved or hated. I didn't even come up on the radar screen. I, I, it, was a, it was a situation where there are always bullies, you know, and I wasn't one of them. And, uh, and I didn't want to be on the receiving end of it either. And I could tell there were other people that they really, really loved to uh, have as their victims. And so I was seeing these two groups of people, the hunter and the hunted. And I thought, I think it's just better. I can't be a hunter, and I don't want to be hunted. So the only other thing is to camouflage. And so I would just try to be as inconspicuous as possible. And apparently I succeeded because... 
most pe people from my class don't remember that I was ever there. <laughs> and that, so I love this thought that God delights to use the unlikely, the small, the weak, because it brings him more glory. And another thing we see here in Ezekiel is the importance of the word of God and the spirit of God. First he says, prophesy, speak the word of the Lord. This is what the, word, the Lord says to you, bones. We see the word of God going out. And he, but even with the word of God, it's still a corpse. He says, well, we also need the breath of God. And you know, there are a lot of people that insist on one or the other. As someone said the other day, you know, uh, they were saying, well, but, you know, which is, which is more important? Or which, which is the thing? He says, well, for you, when you're flying on a plane, which is more important, the left wing or the right wing? <laughs> yes. And we see the same thing with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Now, everybody has an inclination. Some of us are scribes. We lean toward the Bible. We like the Bible. We like the guy to preach the Bible when he gets up there. We don't want to just hear what's in the Wall Street Journal. We want the Scriptures. And then there are others of us that maybe lean toward the Spirit side. We want to pray. We want interesting things to happen. We want to believe God for great things. We want to maybe pray over the sick or something. But we see all the way through the Scripture, it's not the Word or the Spirit. It's the Word and the Spirit. And when the issue came up in, in Acts about the need for deacons, they said, we're going to appoint men to serve the tables for the widows, for we must devote ourselves to what? Do you remember the passage? What were the elders going to devote themselves to? Prayer and the ministry of the Word. And notice the order. Prayer is first there. I'm afraid we're a little heavier on the Bible. It's wonderful to be heavy on the Bible, but it's not wonderful to be light on the Spirit. Well, let's take a look at, in the New Testament, an issue, something that came up with resurrection in the raising of Lazarus. Now, technically, they would say it wasn't a resurrection because he died again later. So they would say it was the raising of Lazarus, but I guess that's just technicalities. I'm sure Lazarus was glad, no matter what you want to call it. <laughs> but if you want to look in your Bible in John 11, but Lazarus was sick, and they called for Jesus to come. And it says in verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Notice for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And then it says he stayed there two more days. And that resulted in Lazarus dying. And by the time they get there, it's all over. They're in the funeral. Jesus said, you need to take away the stone. And then that's in verse 38, verse 39. It says, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, as it says in King James, by this time he stinketh. It's like some teenager's rooms. Uh, by this time, there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Now, there was no embalming. It was not a hot, dry climate like Egypt. And they had had a lot of experience. You were, you were your own family's embalmer. You had a wake that lasted all night long. And if in 24 hours you didn't get that guy wrapped up with spices and in where he's going, you're going to be sorry because the job's just going to get worse. 
So after a day or so, they would go ahead and get them in there and get them sealed off because the odor is quite strong. And Jesus says in verse 40, Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus prayed. And then in verse 43, he said, Lazarus, come out or come forth. Now, there are a number of things that we, we see in this. First, we notice that Jesus could have saved him. He could have come in time to just heal him. And that would have been like he'd done in many other cases, and that would be his way of salvation. But on purpose, he didn't go save him. He let him die. He let it get to be where it looked impossible. It was sick. He was sick. But there was hope. Jesus is in town or not too far away. He'll be able to get here in time. Jesus dawdles on purpose and gets there too late. And they say, oh, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Jesus knew that, so that's why he didn't come. On purpose he didn't come because he was wanting to do something even greater. Than his goal was not just to get Lazarus back to health. He could have done that at a distance. He could have just said when they said Lazarus is sick, he says, well, just take my word back to him. He'll... Okay, he's fine now. But he didn't. He chose to let him die because he wanted to do something greater, something that would glorify God even more than healing him. Of course, he didn't tell Mary and Martha that, so they had to walk through that. And there are a lot of times he doesn't tell us what's going on. What he does tell us is, if you get to know me, you will know all you need to know. You will know that you can trust me. You will know that it's in good hands. And you can rest as if you knew there was going to be a positive outcome because you know in whose hands it is. We won't get to the end if I don't go ahead and start with some of the uh, application here. But I want to talk about what, what are some things that this has to do. This, uh, like I said, we've seen this through the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And in the end of the New Testament, it says we're all going to rise from the dead. So this is something from beginning to end. He's not only a God of creation, he's also a God of resurrection. And three areas of uh, application might be, one is in your devotional life. In your devotional life. Some of you have heard that it's a good idea to pray in the morning or read your Bible in the morning. And you say, well, I'm not a morning person, you know. Uh, of course, you try to read your Bible at night and you realize, well, I'm not an evening person either. I got kind of sleepy then too. And this was a thought that came to me one time. Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one that is taught, like one being taught. And I can remember how for years I thought, I just can't do this in the morning. I'm just too sleepy. I need to sleep till as late as I can. And then, you know, there's just enough time if I get up and race through everything and shoot out the door. And this whole idea of, well, could you back that up so that you could have every day of your life, 30 minutes with your Heavenly Father in the morning? Oh, you don't like to hear that. Henry, don't say that. Uh, I'm, just getting, I'm just keeping that thing at bay. But you realize that when you try to do it at other times, it just half the time doesn't happen. Now, for some, some are really consistent at night, you know. But the whole idea of even if it's five minutes, but starting the day with God, seeking first the kingdom of heaven. And I think we can 
think about God being the God of the resurrection. Why? Because I'm dead in the morning. I can't wake up. We think this is a hopeless situation. We look at our dead body in the bed there at 6 in the morning and says, can these bones live? Can this person possibly ever have hope of getting up in the morning and meeting with God? If God is the God of the resurrection, we can say, Lord, when that alarm goes off, oh, Lord, I want to know the power of your resurrection. <laughs> say to me, wake up, soul. And you get your body up and you begin to pray and ask God that he will get your soul up so that you can meet with him. When that first hit me, I was uh, in a summer training program, and I already knew I was not going to be able to have a morning time because I had to be at my job at 7.15 in the morning. I was on, on the Stone Mountain side of Atlanta, and I had to get all the way over to Smyrna, which is all the way around I-285. And I, we had meetings every night, so I couldn't just go to bed early. And, and I thought, well, I, I won't be able to have a time with the Lord in the morning. I listened to a tape by Stephen Olford, and he talked about the importance of the morning watch to meet with God every morning. And he's such a dynamic British speaker and everything. And I got so charged up, I thought, I can't not do it. So I, I got figured out my, where my chair was going to be out on the balcony where the cold air would get me. And I got my coffee and I bought yogurt. And I, I had all of these things to kind of get me resurrected, you know, my Bible and everything. And I began to meet with God every day that whole summer. Didn't miss a single day. And that was about 30 years ago. And that has been a habit ever since. But whenever my flesh starts coming in and says, oh, no, you can't do this. You're just too dead. I say, my God is the God of the resurrection. And I want to give him a chance at least, you know. I mean, maybe these bones won't live. He doesn't resurrect all the dead. But, uh, you know, maybe I'll be one of those ones. But I, I've certainly experienced it in my life. Second application is in, in facing a huge personal defeat. In facing a huge personal defeat, Micah 7, 7 and 8 says, But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for my God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Listen to this. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Isn't that good? Though I have fallen, I will rise. Now some of you have had a really good life. And you're just filled with gratitude for what God has done in your life. But many of you have had a number of glitches along the way. Now, they may be glitches, self-inflicted glitches. I mean, at the time, you thought it was a really clever thing, a cool thing. This is going to be great. It won't matter. You know, I know my mom doesn't agree with this or my dad or the council or my spouse or whatever. And you got into something. Maybe it was bit by bit. Maybe it was all at once. Maybe it was a, some opportunity might... It might have been a, a sin or just something so foolish that so hurt you personally or your family. It might have been a bad marriage. It might have been an abortion. It might have been some substance abuse. It might have been a failed career. It might have been a situation in your job where you did something and then got fired. There's just so many ways that we can break our life. And I'm not talking primarily about the things that happen to us from the outside, where it comes and uh, a, a hurricane comes and takes my house away. Well, I didn't take my house away. God took my house away. No, I'm talking about the things that happened in your life, and it was you. I mean, you could say, yeah, but my dad was mean to me, so maybe it's somehow his fault, or my neighbor is mean, so maybe that's why I, I don't keep my house clean. You know, these, th these kind of logical, illogical ways we try to escape this guilt that 
nags us because our life to this present day is affected by those things. Other people don't know it, but it follows us around like a shadow. And so no matter where we go, when we look back, there's that thing we think, oh man, I can't believe I did that. Now at the time, it didn't bother you that much. But as the years go by and you think, well, with distance, I'll feel distance. It's not that way somehow. There is a blackness, a heaviness, a weight, uh, almost a, a, a depression, a sadness. Now you try not to think about it. You try to keep it back, covered up, and yet it is still there. And to me, this idea that God is the God of the resurrection must go very deeply into us because there is something that has died in our life. And God says, I want you to know I'm not just the God of creation. I'm the God of resurrection. And you may think you're a used up cup that nobody's going to want. And he says, you haven't known me yet then. He says, that's what I specialize in. He says, I want you so much. And I have such great plans for you. He said, but Lord, I'm just trash now. He says, that's what I specialize in. I'm the biggest recycler in the universe. I heard a story, uh, just a, it's a made-up story, but it was just so good expressing. But uh, a young man had fallen in love with a girl in town, he, but he, was real, he lived with his mother. They had a wonderful relationship. The girl didn't believe that he really loved her. I thought he was going to be a mama's boy forever. And he says, well, how can I prove it to you? And this went on and on. She says, well, I'm going to drop you because I know you love your mom. Well, how can I prove it to you that I love you more? She says, kill your mom and bring me her heart. That's the only way I'll believe you. Make a long story short, <laughs> he finally gets so desperate, he kills his mother, cuts out her heart, is running, have you heard this one? He's running through the forest with this heart. I woke you up with this one. And it's a dark night, he trips over a root, falls, and the heart is lost somewhere in the bushes. And he's poking through the bushes, and he hears this voice that calls out, Son, did you hurt yourself? Son, did you hurt yourself? My friends, that's just a made-up story. But this is not a made-up story. And you have hurt yourself so deeply, and you know that maybe that what you did was sin and it was wrong. But I believe the heart of God comes to us today, and he says to you, but my dear child, did you hurt yourself when you fell? Yeah, but I'd sinned so... But did you hurt yourself? I know it must feel really bad. That we serve a God of that kind of love, a God of the resurrection, a God who says, when everybody else says it's over, when everyone else says you're trash, he says, I've just begun. He says, this is my specialty. Will you trust me? Will you begin to believe me today for something that no one could possibly imagine or believe? That's the God we serve. That's the God we love. That's the God we want to live with forever. Let's pray. I'm so grateful, Lord, that you are the God, not only of creation, but of resurrection. There's so many things, Lord, that I would just drag around like a ball in chains. But with Micah, I say here today, though I have fallen, I will rise. Though for a while I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Speak over us tonight, Lord, words of resurrection and life. Make us your treasure, your children, forever. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. 